Father in heaven, I want to pray a special prayer of insight and wisdom and understanding. Father, this is a chapter that really invites us to observe and to take in our own sincerity, our own honesty. And Father, not to pretend with you, not to be disingenuous with you. Father, may we get everything, may we extract everything that we can get in the sort of hour that we're going to spend together here from this chapter. Um, Lord, I pray for practical application. I pray for personal application. Um, Lord, just do your thing. Do your thing in this chapter. So great to be back with the crew. Uh, Bless us now. Send us your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right. Here we go. Chapter 66 of the Desire of Ages. But first... We're going to read beginning in Matthew chapter 22, and we'll pick it up in verse 15. It's a a lengthy section. It goes from 15 all the way down to what, 46? But it's fast moving, it's interactive, and we're we're just gonna read the whole thing. All right, here we go. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of any men. Verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and superscription is this? And they said to him, well, Caesar's. And he said to them, render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We'll come back to that. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Question number one. Question number two. Verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us uh, seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, that's question number two. Now question number three, beginning in verse 34. Now when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, that is to say, the Old Testament. Uh, Verse 41, uh, that's the third question, the third question. And then uh, now the fourth question, but this is not a question asked of Jesus. It's a question asked by Jesus. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? 
They said to him, piece of cake. He is the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Quoting from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. <laughs> Come on now. So four questions. This chapter revolves around four questions. The first three questions are asked of Jesus, and the fourth and final question is asked by Jesus. Now, years ago, I sat down and tried to figure out exactly when it is that Matthew chapter 22 takes place, and it's probably like, as near as I can tell, it's maybe the Tuesday before the crucifixion, right? So Jesus is going to be crucified on a Friday. This is the Monday or the Tuesday probably before the crucifixion. So we are well and truly in the final week of Jesus' life, and he gets this bam, 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 rapid fire series of questions that are designed to try and trap Jesus. And the reason, of course, that they want to try and trap Jesus is that he has shown himself again and again to not fit nicely and neatly into any of the prescribed religious boxes, either on the sort of pharisaical end of the spectrum or the Sadducees, right? The Sadduceical, if that's a word, end of the spectrum. So they're just really still, even now, after years of his public ministry, they're just trying to get their finger on him and pin him down. Like, who is this guy? What does he believe? You know, why doesn't he wash his hands? And why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? And why does he travel widely? And why did he come late to the feast? And why, 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 why? And very often they would sort of come to him and, and try to address him or, or, or greet him. Greet's not the right word. They would try to just understand him sort of like mano e mano. But, but here they're just asking him very difficult vexing questions right out. They're just trying to trap him. And it's obvious to everybody. It's obvious to Jesus. It's obvious to the crowd. The only people that it might not be perfectly obvious to that, that they're trying to trap him is the people that are trying to do it. They are under this illusion like they're being clever and they're being sly. And yet it's just as obvious you know, as, as possible for anyone to see that this is all trickery, right? They're trying to lay a trap for Jesus to try and put him to, to just try and find some way by which they can discredit him and try to steal away the popularity and the influence and the effect, frankly, that he's having on Judaism generally around uh, Palestine, but especially in and around Jerusalem, because that's where especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the most invested. Well, Jesus is now since the triumphal entry. He's in Jerusalem, right? We've been in Jerusalem for the last several chapters, and Jesus influence is increasing and they're losing credibility at every interaction. And so here they're just going to come out. They say, they're pulling out the big guns. They say, we're going to get him. We're going to get him. And they ask him three very seemingly very problematic questions, right? And, and these were questions that were hotly debated among the various rabbinical schools and perspectives. The question about Rome and Caesar and taxes, that's question number one. Question number two was coming from the Sadducees. What about the resurrection and and they create what they think is an you know, insuperable obstacle, theological obstacle that Jesus will not be able to surmount. And then finally, the question about in all of Torah, which is the, my son trying to call me, all of these are um, questions designed to get to the heart of thorny issues 
And they believe that Jesus is going to say something wrong. He's going to make a mistake. And they're going to say, aha, we finally got you. After all of these efforts, after all of this frustration, we nailed you to the wall. And uh, I think they genuinely believe they're going to pull it off. Like they're coming up to Jesus. They're confident. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll ask him that resurrection question. Yeah, high five. Oh, no, no, I got an idea. Let's ask him about paying taxes. High five. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees both have their sort of respective go-to vexing questions. They're thorny questions. They're problematic questions. And they're just sure Jesus is going to be absolutely stymied and flummoxed and and he's going to stumble, make a mistake, and they're going to go, gotcha. Okay, that's what makes the the intrigue here so great. Um, So I'm in paragraph one. This is chapter 66. I'm on page 708 of Types and Symbols and uh, 601 in the original. Okay, so the first paragraph there just basically says that uh, they sent out spies. I've just sort of painted that picture here. The last sentence says that the Pharisees and the Herodians had been bitter enemies but they were now one in enmity to Christ. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Neither of them like one another, but they really don't like Jesus for, for different reasons. The Pharisees, who are the traditionalists, don't like Jesus because he's undermining many of their teachings and their popularity and their influence. And the Sadducees don't like Jesus because he's too pious, he's too good. And the influence that he's getting and the crowds that he's attracting, especially in and around Jerusalem, could threaten that delicate balance of the Sadducees keeping the Roman authorities happy. No, 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 no. We've got this under control. These are our people. We'll deal with them. And so if something does get out of control, that reflects negatively on the Sadducees, who are the aristocracy. And so for different reasons, neither of them like Jesus. And so they come together reluctantly. They can barely stand to look at one another. They can barely stand to be in the presence of the other, one regarding uh, the other as basically backwoods traditionalists and, you know, um, old-fashioned, and then th- those then regarding the Sadducees as sellouts and uh, n- non-believers in Torah, okay? So that's paragraph one. Um, paragraph number two says, uh, da, 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 da. it says, the spies came to him with apparent sincerity uh, as though desiring to know their duty, and they asked the first of the four questions that we're going to look at today. Teacher, we know that you teach rightly and that you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I really like what Ellen White does here. She basically says that everything they said was true. It's actually true what they said, right? Each one of those lines is correct. Um, teacher, we know that you teach correctly. True, and you do not show personal favoritism. True, you teach the way of God in truth. True. Now they're using this to butter Jesus up or to flatter him, to try to ingratiate themselves to him. Again, everybody knows what's going on and these people are kidding themselves if they think that this is not perfectly obvious and transparent what's taking place here. So after they've sort of begun with these flattering words, which again, I like what Ellen White does here. She says, these words were true. These words were true. And then she says, because they spoke them at at some level in their heart of hearts, they themselves knew them to be true. And so she says, this is the standard by which they would be judged. Whoa, she actually says that. She says, the Pharisees did did know that Christ had said and taught rightly and by their own testimony, they were to be judged. Fascinating, okay? But they're still operating under the, you know, rather naive um, illusion that this is, you know, oh, we're going to pull a fast one. We'll go up and we'll flatter him. I mean, Nicodemus was trying this back in John 3, man. 
We're in Matthew 22, right? This is not going to work. And so then the next paragraph, they disguised their purpose, but Jesus read their hearts. And we've seen this again and again. And then she says something very interesting. She says that Jesus actually gave them a sign when he said to them, um, why are you testing me? He, he gave them a sign because he basically let them know, I know what you're doing. I know that you think you've hidden this really well, but I read what you're doing. I know your motivations. I know why you're here. I know that you've been sent to try and trap me. And this would have been one of those sort of Holy Spirit moments where they would have had the opportunity to go, uh, this guy's onto us. Maybe rather than trying to trap him and flatter him, we should just fall down on his feet and worship him and say, Praise God for the son of David, right? But, but that conviction was stifled. And uh, even though Jesus has read their purpose, they, uh, I, like, I like what she says here. She says they were, they were still confused, more confused when he said, show me a denarius. And she uses some really funny words here. Uh, between this chapter or this paragraph and the next paragraph, she says they were confused, they were baffled, they were defeated. And then she even says, I loved this, that their plans were disarranged. I don't think that's a word I've ever used in my whole life. 48 years, and I love the English language, I don't think I have ever said until right now the word disarranged. <laughs> I like it. It's so good. She's like, they were flummoxed, they were baffled, they were confused. They were, um, what was the other one she said there? Uh, defeated, and their plans were disarranged. They thought this interaction was going to go one way. It goes a very different way. And so I really like that. I thought that was funny. In fact, numerous times in this chapter, in the, in the margin, I wrote funny, funny, funny. I think it's like six times. This interaction has so many, it's very serious interaction. I, I don't want to suggest that it's not. But there are several elements of this interaction, particularly the grand climax, that's just humorous. And Ellen White's treatment of it is also quite funny. So when she describes them as confused and baffled and defeated and having their plans deranged, it was, it was all really great. So he says, um, yeah, yeah, let me see a denarius. And uh, the spies, she said, had expected Jesus to answer their question directly in one way or the other. If he should say it's unlawful to give tribute to Caesar, aha, got you. Uh, he would be reported to the Roman authorities and arrested for inciting rebellion. If, however, on the other hand, he should pronounce it lawful to pay the tribute, then they would accuse him of being a breaker of Torah, right? Because many of the rabbis thought it was, it was illegitimate to return to a pagan foreign power that which was yours, which you owned. And so I just really like this. When she says their plans were deranged, she concludes that paragraph with this sentence. The summary manner in which their question had been settled left them nothing further to say. And I just wrote here in the margin, um, have a great day, fellas. <laughs> you know, just have a great day. Because when they hand him the denarius, he just says, okay, so whose image is this on this coin? Who's and they would have looked and said, well, that's, that's Caesar's image. Jesus hands them back the coin and says, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. That's it. That's the answer. And uh, in, in that next paragraph, the paragraph that begins, Christ's reply was no evasion. Look at the last sentence of that paragraph. It's absolutely remarkable. She says, but while peaceably subject to the laws of the land, they, we, should at all times give their, our, first allegiance to God. Oh, that's perfectly communicated. So we should be peaceably subject to the laws of the land in which we find ourselves, 
And then she says, but our highest allegiance, our highest loyalty is to God. So take this little coin, right? Take this funny shaped coin with this, you know, perhaps poorly executed image of Caesar and you can give that to him, but make sure you're giving to God the things that are God's and they're perfectly flummoxed, right? They, they don't know what to do. And then, and this next paragraph is one of the reasons that I love and read Ellen White. It's an insight that's so awesome and, and frankly so obvious in hindsight, but it's not one that I saw. And, and this happens again and again with me in reading Ellen White, I'm like, yeah, I'm following her exposition. Yep, yep, saw that. Yes, saw that, saw that. But but quite often, actually, she'll make an application. She'll make a point. She'll have an insight. And I'll say, I totally didn't get that. I fully missed that. And that next paragraph begins, the Savior's words render. This is such a great insight. The Savior's words render to God the things that are God's were a severe rebuke to the intriguing Jews. Had they faithfully fulfilled their obligations to God, they would not have become a broken nation subject to a foreign power. Ah, what a great insight. When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's, implicit in that very simple, straightforward advice is that there would be no subjugation to Caesar. There would be no rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's if you had originally, as a nation, rendered to God the things that are God's. Smart. So smart. And then she goes through this little section where she says there would have been no Roman sentinel, there would have been no Roman ensign, there would have been no Roman governor. The Jewish nation, she says, was, and this is a great crafty little play on words. This is the last sentence of that paragraph. She says, the Jewish nation was then paying the penalty of apostasy from God. Paying. What a great, perfect play on words. Because the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And she says, yeah, they were paying something. But the thing that they were actually paying was the penalty for their own insularity and insubordination and rebellion. The wages of sin is death. Right? They're, they're paying that which God never intended them to pay. God's plan was not for Israel to be subjugated to Rome. God's plan wasn't for them to be con, you know, consistently and continually subjugated to these foreign powers. This was no part of God's plan. But when a series of decisions had been made by them and their ancestors, put them into a situation, they now come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, what do you think of this? And in his answer, which is so straightforward and so simple and so awesome, Render to God the things that are God's and to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is an implicit rebuke that this situation wouldn't even exist if as a nation and as individuals, you were rendering to God the things that are God's. Smart. Great insight. Exactly the kind of reason why I consistently read Ellen White. And um, so with that answer, what could they say? And just a brief sort of application on that answer for us today. Well, the application is right there. I just read it a moment ago that we should peaceably obey the laws of the land, but our highest allegiance and our highest loyalty is to God. Fair enough, right? If you live in a place where you, like I do in the United States of America or where I used to in Australia, you can peaceably assemble and, and the government's not coming to you and saying, you have to disobey God. 
you can't worship the one true God. Like that's not happening right now in America. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. I am, I am as aware of and concerned about the impingements, the increasing impingements upon freedom of speech and religious liberty in the United States and all. I'm, yes, yes, well aware of it, very concerned about it. There's no question, according to the book of Revelation, where this is going, right? Like we know where this is all going to end up. But for right now, here I am, I'm in my neighbor's house and I'm broadcasting to you and we're talking about Jesus and the government's not coming to me telling me that I have to do something or that I cannot do something that as yet is a direct impingement of what scripture says. And so if the government wants to take my taxes for roads and, and uh, the military and for other things that they have deemed as a sort of um, uh, necessity of living in this country, okay, fine. I don't, I don't like to do it. I mean, I don't know anybody that's like, yeah, take my money, take my taxes, increase my tax rate. No, I'm not happy about it. I do believe, as you probably do as well, that the government could do a much better job of spending our money. I mean, the government, at this point, the government is so big, so ballooned, so ridiculous, layers upon layers upon layers upon layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of bureaucracy. The, the government that exists today in the United States of America, in my opinion, bears only a, a faint uh, reflection of the government that the original founders intended, right? Like, and fair enough, you know, when the Constitution was written, there was like, what, 3 million people probably in the United States. Now there's 330 million. That's a hundredfold increase. So yes, times have changed. Circumstances have changed. But listen, I'm not wild about a lot of the decisions that the government makes. And, and I say that independent of who's in power. You already know my feelings about politics. I'm simply saying what I prefer to Pay lower taxes? Yes. Would I prefer to have governments that I thought were more responsibly spending my money? You better believe it. You had better believe it. But guess what? I return my taxes. I return my taxes because I live in a country and that's a part of living in this country and I'm going to do so peaceably. Now, do I ask my tax person to get me every possible um, uh, uh, you know, deduction that I can get and opportunity that I, yes, I want to decrease my tax liability. Uh, I mean, I don't make very much money. The truth be told, I make what a pastor makes. So my, my, you know, financial income is pretty low, so I don't have to pay huge amounts of taxes, but I'd love to pay less. I'd love to pay less. Probably you would too. And so the message for me today is as long as the government is not breathing down my throat, telling me what I can and cannot do, that I'm going to peaceably obey the laws of the land. Now, as a citizen, I reserve my right to speak up and say that something is absurd or ridiculous or not well executed or unwise. Sure, sure, and you can exercise that right too. It's called the freedom of speech. Again, do I think we're living in a time where freedom of speech is being increasingly impinged upon? Yes, I do. Am I worried about where this is going? Of course I am, and I, and I think I don't want to be insulting here, but I think anybody that's paying attention would have to be increasingly concerned about where this is going, particularly for those of us that value the religious freedom that is ours to say and teach and believe what scripture says, right? It's, it's just a, it appears to be that it's just a matter of time before the teachings of scripture are just not, right now, they're already regarded by some as hate speech, hate speech, but I think it's just a matter of time before they are, I think it's possibly that it's a matter of time, possible 
It's possible that it's a matter of time before they are not just regarded by some as hate speech, but they are declared hate speech, certain passages and teachings of Scripture. Sure. And that will be a time where then the preacher um, will have to make up her mind. Am I going to render to Caesar the things that are God's? No. We cannot render to Caesar the things that are God's. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And we render to God the things that are God's. Okay? And is the pressure going to come on us to render to Caesar the things that are God's? Absolutely. Absolutely. Scripture is clear on that, in my opinion. And we'll get into that eventually a little bit later. So I just really like the idea that they're flummoxed here. And um, that next paragraph then, when the Pharisees heard Christ's answer, they marveled and left him alone and went their way. He had rebuked their hypocrisy and presumption. And in so doing, he had stated a great principle What is that great principle? A principle that clearly defines the limits of man's duty to the civil government and his duty to God. In many minds, a vexed question had been settled. And ever after, ever after, excuse me, they had the, they held to the right principle. And although many went away dissatisfied, they saw that the principle underlying the question had been clearly set forth and they marveled at Christ's far-reaching discernment. So two times in this paragraph, she says, they marveled, they marveled, they were amazed And what I really like about this is that she says this was a vexing question, right? This is a question that rabbis had debated for years and late into the night had argued with one another and taught their students and written probably, you know, papers on or given great orations on. And Jesus literally answers the question in like 60 seconds flat, like 60 seconds, 60 seconds. He's like, let me see the coin. Yeah. Whose image and superscription is this? Caesar's, okay, gives it back to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And everybody's like, oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah, of course. This vexing, difficult question instantly solved by Jesus in 60 seconds. So this whole idea that we're gonna trap him, we're gonna, we're gonna yeah, we've got our go-to questions so we're gonna, we're gonna nail him to the wall, at least with regards to the first one, not going so well. Now this chapter is, it felt to me a little bit like a, and in, in Matthew chapter 22 actually feels this way as well, kind of like this oscillating fan. And it goes like Pharisees, Sadducees, Pharisees, and especially in chapter 66 of the Desire of Ages, it's like Pharisees, Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. The... She goes back and forth describing, particularly with regard to the Sadducees, the sort of theological backdrop that prompted them to ask the question that they asked. So now the Sadducees are up. Second question, Sadducees are up. And she spent some time there. Um, No sooner were the Pharisees silenced than the Sadducees came forward with their artful questions, right? And so uh, I just, I'll show you here, all of those little boxes there, the Pharisees, and then here, the Sadducees, here, the Sadducees, here, the Pharisees, here, the Sadducees, here's the Sadducees, just, oh, back and forth. You know, just sort of this and then this. And she spent some time sort of unpacking the, Um, theology of the Sadducees. And she says some things that I thought were really quite fascinating, actually, and I might spend a little bit of time on that. Um, But she basically says that the question that they decided to ask Jesus about was the resurrection. And they were, as opposed to the Pharisees, who were believers in the resurrection and traditionalists on this question, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they had their sort of artful questions their dilemmas that they were going to present to Jesus, they thought, oh, we, this works on everybody. We'll nail him to the wall with this question. And um, 
I thought she did a good job. There's really sort of three, four paragraphs there where she describes the Sadducees theology. And in my margin, I didn't have room to write Sadducees. So I just wrote sad period theology. And then when I looked at it afterward, I was like, oh, yeah, that is some really sad theology. (laughs) So she goes through about four paragraphs there where she describes the sort of some of the inner workings of the sad theology of the Sadducees. And she basically refers to them as skeptics with reference to scripture and the power of God. She even calls them materialists, which I thought was fascinating. She says, uh, practically, they were skeptics and materialists. And she describes maybe the only section, will I read any of this? I'm just gonna skip over that section because you can read it for yourself. But she basically describes the the backdrop, the, the, the sort of, rough um, outline of this Sadducees philosophy and theology that prompted them to ask Jesus the question that they did. And so, of course, then they ask a question that she says, this is the paragraph that begins, this teaching the Sadducees were determined to discredit. And that was that the power of God could change a life and the power of God could raise someone from the dead. And so they're like, we're gonna get this guy, we're gonna trick him. The Pharisees can't do it. The the traditionalists can't do it. We know just the question to stump him. And uh, here's another one of the places where I wrote funny in the margin. There were several places where I found myself writing funny here. She says, the resurrection was the subject on which they chose to question him. Should he agree with them, he would give still further offense to the Pharisees. Yes, they thought that'd be great. Should he differ with them, they designed to hold his teaching up to ridicule, right? So for for the Sadducees, you know, their perspective is this is win-win. He's either going to agree with us and then that'll further show that the Pharisees are wrong about this because a popular rabbi sides with us on the question of the resurrection. But if he tries to hold up this resurrection nonsense, then we'll ridicule him and show how absurd this is and all the people will see. Okay? So so it's win-win in their mind. And I just wrote funny. That's funny. Good luck with that. Let's see how that works out for you. You know, trying to trap, you know, the infinite, eternal, illimitable, incarnate God in a logical paradox, a logical dilemma. Let's see how that goes. Um, So then they come and they basically ask the question about the, the woman who had the seven husbands in the resurrection, whose will she be? And uh, the paragraph that begins in answer to their questions, Jesus lifted the veil from the future life. In the resurrection, he said, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels of God in heaven. He showed that the Sadducees were wrong in their belief. Their premises were false. And Jesus says, you are mistaken. You are mistaken, not knowing either the scriptures nor the power of God. And then she says he did not charge them as he had the Pharisees with hypocrisy, but with error of belief. I just like that. I would have loved to have been a fly on a wall there, right? Or or like a local shepherd that was listening into this conversation. So here come these very smart, very articulate people who are a part of the aristocracy. They fancy themselves educated, intelligent, wise, a cut above, the true expositors of scripture. And they're gonna go up to this, what, 30-year-old rabbi, travel-worn clothes, you know, a a nobody, hasn't been to any of the schools. He's continuing to uh, consistently flummoxing the, the Pharisees. And they just think, This is one of the very few interactions between Jesus and the Sadducees. And they're like, 
watch this, right? Like the old, like, hold my beer and watch this, right? Except they would have said, hold my phylactery and watch this. So, so they walk up to Jesus and uh, they ask him this question and, and Jesus says, um, yeah, you're mistaken. <laughs> I just love it. I just absolutely love it. I, I wish I could have been there to just see this, this nobody, right? Just say, you're mistaken. <laughs> mistaken? Yeah, yeah, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures. <laughs> what? You're saying we don't know the scriptures. We, we are the premier expositors of the scriptures in the land, my friend. No, no, you're mistaken. I'm sorry, you're mistaken. Who says this kind of thing? Right, this reminds me back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus had just finished his Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he had said six times, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say. And the people, at the, at the last little bit there, it says that the people were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, this is clearly Jesus exercising authority here. Like he's, this is real talk. He says, oh, you're mistaken. M- mistaken? Yeah, yeah, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. She says, their premises were false. Let's continue on here. The Sadducees had flattered themselves that they, of all men, adhered most strictly to the scriptures. But Jesus showed that they had not known their true meaning. That knowledge must be brought home to the heart by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Their ignorance of the scriptures and the power of God, he declared, to be the cause of their confusion of faith and darkness of mind. This is now the second time that she has said that Jesus' prospective questioners, his prospective, you know, the the ones that are going to entrap him, go away confused. They're just totally befuddled, flummoxed, confused by the interaction. And she says here, and I thought this whole section was phenomenal because she uses very, I think, creatively and wisely and maybe even a little counterintuitively, she uses the word broaden or broad. She uses that word three times, broad, broad, broaden, right? Because the, the world in which Jesus lived with the Sadducees' regard for the Pharisees and the world in which we live goes something like this. If you take scripture seriously, and by seriously, seriously I mean in some grammatical, literal, historical sense. Like if you take this text seriously, right? You take a conservative view of scripture that that Jesus was the son of God, that he walked on water, that he was born of a virgin, that he fed, you know, thousands of people with a few loaves and fishes, that he raised from the dead. If you take all of that seriously, we live in a world right now that would say, man, got a narrow mind, your mind is narrow. You need to broaden your horizons. You need to, you need to read more. You need to expose yourself to more. You're, you're a fundamentalist. I mean, that's just like the, that's the word that you can just easily throw out in today's culture and climate to instantly delegitimize anyone. Oh, he's a fundamentalist. Oh, and then that's everything you need to know because fundamentalist is like synonymous with as narrow as can be with as small-minded and insular as can be, as parochial as can be. And so I love the fact that what she does here is she actually takes the word broaden and she applies broaden to taking scripture seriously. Okay, I wanna read this whole section because it's so good. Notice what she says here. 
Uh, so this is that same paragraph that begins with the, fair, the Sadducees had flattered themselves. Jump down about a third of the way through that paragraph. They were seeking. Now watch this. They, the Sadducees, were seeking to bring the mysteries of God within the compass of their finite reasoning. Okay, this is awesome. They're just shrinking God down into an easily understood, easily articulated box, right? They present this seemingly insuperable obstacle. Hey, there was a woman, she had seven husbands in the resurrection. Clearly, they believe they have falsified the resurrection here. But what, what she says is they had shrunk They were seeking to bring the mysteries of God within the compass of their finite reasoning. Christ called upon them to open their minds. That is so cool. I love the sort of reversal of fortune here, right? Like you would think that taking scripture seriously, many would say, was a closing of the mind. She says what they needed to do was to open their mind. Okay, watch where she goes. To open their minds to those sacred truths that would broaden... Ah, there we go. And strengthen the understanding or the intelligence. Thousands become unbelievers because their finite minds cannot comprehend the mysteries of God. They cannot explain the wonderful exhibition of divine power in his providences. Therefore, they reject the evidences of such power, attributing them to natural agencies. Here's another place where I wrote funny, which they can comprehend still less. That's funny. That is really funny. She continues, the only key to the mysteries that surround us is to acknowledge in them all the, to acknowledge in them all, excuse me, the presence and power of God. Men need to recognize God as the creator of the universe, one who commands and executes all things. They need to, here it is a second time, broaden, they need a, excuse me, a broader view of his character and of the mystery of his agencies. Okay, let me just summarize all that. Here's what she's saying. She's basically saying God is a mystery. Human minds cannot fathom the infinite, illimitable, eternal spirit God that is the creator. And any effort to shrink God down into that which is easily understood and simply articulated is, a, is, a, is folly, right? It's a chasing after the wind. And she says, if you really want to know what's described in scripture in both Old and New Testaments, you need to broaden your mind. You need to open your mind to what? Yeah, to the fact that you don't understand that God is all-powerful, he is mysterious, and there's stuff that you don't know. There's stuff that you don't understand. And Jesus says to them, and I, I, I get a lot of questions about this, and I'm, I'm not gonna go too deep because no matter what you say, you upset somebody. But when Jesus says, you make a mistake, you are, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Jesus here is... I believe what Jesus is doing here, rather than making an absolute statement about the nature of the afterlife, because this isn't a sincere question. And let's just remind ourselves of that. Jesus is under no obligation to give an in-depth, thoroughly exhaustive theological answer to an insincere and disingenuous question. Now, all Jesus is doing here is saying, you don't even know what an angel is. How are you going to understand the resurrection? You don't know anything about the angel. You don't know anything about the resurrection. You're ignorant. You're in error. So I'm not one of these guys. And I know there are preachers out there that do it. And fine, fine. I have no qualm. I have no quarrel with them. But, you know, there are people that say, look, this is the definitive text on what the afterlife will be like in terms of relationships between, you know, men and their wives and wives and their husbands. It's like, listen, if you read in the text and you see that, good for you. I, I have no quarrel with you. I'm only saying that 
in the whole of scripture, and I've read scripture through, I don't find this to be like, oh yeah, this is taught in Numbers and this is taught in Exodus or whatever. I think Jesus here is simply employing language to let them know they're so far out of their depth, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand angelic uh, 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 nature. They don't understand that afterlife, he's just using these things to leverage their ignorance and to, to show their ignorance. So if, if you want to say, this is proof positive that there will be no marrying in heaven and there will be, okay, fine, I, I got no quarrel with you. But all I say is, I'm just going to wait and see how, how it is when we get there. I'm just going to, I reserve judgment on the precise parameters and details of the afterlife until we get there. And if it ends up being that way, I mean, I'm, I'm not the least bit worried that anyone's going to get to the new heaven and the new earth and be like, ah, I thought it would be better. Right? Like no one's going to be disappointed in the hereafter. So for me, I'm just going to let Jesus give a very pithy and punchy answer to a disingenuous question and not build a whole dogmatic theology out of that. I know there are some people that are really adamant about it. Fine. Fine. You can be dogmatic about it. Um, then he gives this great, great answer. He's like, yeah, but, but don't you know what scripture says? That God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And then this paragraph is gold. This was maybe my favorite paragraph in the whole chapter. I actually took a picture of this chapter and sent it to my dear friend, Karen, whose husband died, whose husband and one of my best friends in the whole world died an untimely and unfortunate death at the age of 53. Just went to sleep, didn't wake up. Devastating. Devastating, of course, to Karen and to his children and devastating to the whole community, devastating to me. And this paragraph to me about God being the God of the living, not the God of the dead, was so moving, I took a snapshot of it and sent it to Karen. I was like, Karen, I thought of you when I read this, and she just responded and said, incredible, God is so good. Soon and very soon. So just listen to this. And if you've lost a loved one, especially in an untimely way, recently, something, just let this soak just soak into your soul right now because this, this is glory. It's the paragraph that begins, he sees. Actually, the paragraph doesn't even begin that way. The paragraph begins, Christ declared to his hearers, but it's about a third of the way down there, about halfway down actually. He sees, pure glory. Prepare yourself for this. He sees the end from the beginning and beholds the results of his work as though it were now accomplished. Woo! Say it again. He beholds the results of his work as if they are now accomplished? Yes, sir. The precious dead from Adam down to the last saint who dies. That's a cool thought. That's a cool thought. Someone's going to be the last saint that dies. Right? And I imagine that they might be saying, Lord, come on. Why, why did I have to be the last one? I mean, if I would have just lived that little bit longer, I could have been alive when Jesus returns. I could have been translated. But... It's a cool thought to think there's going to be a last believer in Jesus that dies. Awesome. So she says, from Adam down to the last saint that dies will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come forth from the grave to immortal life. God will be their God and they shall be his people. There will be, I love this, a close and tender relationship between God and the risen saints. Preach. The condition which is anticipated in his purpose he beholds as if it were already existing. The dead live unto him. Wow! Yes! Yes! 
Yes. This is what Jesus meant when he, this is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, Lazarus is asleep. Only when they were slow to comprehend his meaning did he then reluctantly say, okay, 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 Lazarus is biologically dead. He's biologically dead. But from God's perspective, how does she say it? The dead live unto him. And, and she says, God sees the resurrected and the redeemed and the restored in his presence as if it was already accomplished. And then she says, as if it were already existing. Friends, we live in that great chasm between the already accomplished and the not yet realized. The already accomplished by Christ on the cross and in the resurrection and the not yet realized. We live in that great parenthetical statement. But what she's saying here is, from God's perspective, done. It's done. It's done because in the cross, friends, and I've said this before, and I think a lot of people don't always get this. In the cross and in the resurrection, what God did is he took an end of history event in Jewish eschatology, the resurrection. And he took that end of history event and he put it right in the middle of history. I mean, we now know that the resurrection is a surefire guarantee for you and I and those that put our faith in Jesus because it's already happened. I mean, in a way, and Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in a way, everybody has already died, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14, we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died. In some sense, Everybody died in Christ because he was the second Adam. And then in another amazing sense, everybody that will put their faith in Jesus is already alive right now and experiencing eternal life. Not just those like you and I that are right now biologically alive and breathing and our heart is pumping and we're speaking and going through the sort of day-to-day experience of everyday life. Even the dead are alive to God. The dead live unto him. Ah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, And so now the Sadducees are put to silence. Uh, I love this. This is so good. His adversaries at this point, next paragraph, his adversaries had gained nothing but the contempt of the people. Oh, that's great writing. Oh, that is such good writing. You know, they're just absolutely sure. They're going to pin Jesus to the wall. And she says, at this point, they had achieved nothing. They had accomplished nothing. They had gained nothing except the contempt of the onlooking crowd who are just getting shown up. I mean, I mean, they're just getting shown up and the crowd is looking on and like, look at these fools. Look at these fools trying to move an immovable object. Look at these fools trying to trick and trap and befuddle the Messiah who clearly knows the text of scripture and the power of God and an intimate heart, heart connection with God better than any of them. So I just love it. Um, so let's see. I'm just going to skip down a little bit here. Okay, then the third, the third and final question. Teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus says, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And she says, actually, it's really quite cool. She, do, she does this great thing, which I really like, where she shows the, the, the unibody construction, as it were, the holistic nature of the law Because as we've talked about in DA with DA, the 10 reduced to the two principles reduced to the one great principle, the greatest of all principles, right? These three remain and the greatest of these is love. 
So you have the Ten Commandments that reduce to supreme love for God and authentic love for mankind, and then that reduces down to the one. And so she makes this great point. Because the law is whole, because it's unibody construction, so to speak, you can't break one and keep nine or break two and keep eight and be keeping the spirit of the law because it's all born out of this central idea of love. And she does a very, very good job of communicating this idea. She says, for example, only as we love God supremely is it possible to love our our neighbor impartially. And since all the commandments are summed up in love to God and man, it follows that not one precept can be broken without violating this principle. Thus Christ taught his hearers that the law of God is not so many separate precepts, some of which are of great importance while others are of small importance and may with impunity be ignored. No, our Lord presents the first four and the last six commandments as a divine whole and teaches that love to God will be shown by obedience to all of his commandments. Then in the next paragraph, she says that the person who would ask this question was astonished. She also says that unlike the first two questions, this fellow was sincere. That doesn't really come out in the Matthew account, but in the Luke account, I think it's the Luke account. In the Luke account, this is where Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom, right? When, when, because after Jesus gives the answer, the man responds. This doesn't happen in the Matthew account, which we read. And he says, hey, that's right. Hey, that's right. And, and Ellen White gives a little insight here. And she says that, that this man was a sincere man who was increasingly persuaded that, that all of the rites and the rituals and the ceremonies, that all of that was, was not really the point of Judaism. That there was a larger point, and that larger point was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbors yourself. Both of those are taken from Torah. And so when the man says to Jesus, hey, hey, that, that's right, then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. You're onto it, young man. You're onto it. And the only thing that was left for him to do was to recognize the divine nature of Messiah. So he was close. He was close. And I love the way that Jesus deals more tenderly, maybe more tenderly is the wrong word. Jesus deals with this person differently than with the first two that have come because their questions are questions that are designed to trap. They're disingenuous. And when a genuine questioner comes to Jesus, there's that affirmation. You're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. And then in that paragraph, she, she says again, he gained a broader view of the principles. And so she uses that word broad or broader or broaden. I really like the fact that that is a word that shows up here um, a number of times. She says that the readiness of this man to acknowledge the correctness of Christ's reasoning and his decided and prompt response before the people manifested a spirit entirely different from that of the priests and rulers. And the heart of Jesus went out with pity to the honest scribe. Now, I'm going to say one thing here really quick, and if you get it, great. You'll find this to be really cool and insightful. And if you don't get it, that's okay. So I'm going to assume a little bit of uh, familiarity and conversancy here with Revelation and the eschatology of the book of Revelation. If this is unfamiliar to you or new to you, then you might not get this part, but I'll be very brief. So this is on like the Monday or the Tuesday before Jesus' crucifixion. And this is when he's about ready to face his greatest trial up to this point, which is, of course, the crucifixion, right? So, so just before Jesus comes into this extremely trying trial, he's asked three questions, okay? And the questions are reducible down to, are you ready? Question number one, what is the nature of our relationship to the state? To the state. Question number two, 
What about the state of the dead? What about the state of the dead? What about the resurrection? What about the state of the dead? And question number three, what about the law? What is, what's really at stake with the law? Now, if you're familiar with Revelation and you're familiar with books like The Great Controversy, let me say those again. Our relationship to the state, our relationship to the state of the dead, and our relationship to the law. Friends, those are the very same three questions that are going to be the, the questions, the capital T, capital Q questions that are going to confront God's people in the last days. How do we relate to the state? How do we relate to the dead? How do we relate to law? And not coincidentally, those are the very three questions that were put to Jesus. How do we relate to the state? How do we relate to the dead, those that have passed away, the state of the dead, and how do we relate to the law? Fascinating. I'll just leave that there. If you got it, great. If you didn't, that's okay. That's okay. Okay. Then fourthly and finally, Jesus puts a question to them, to the onlookers. And this is gold. I mean, absolute gold. And Jesus begins by asking a question that seemed really simple and really easy. I'm in verse 41 of Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus said to them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, this was a Sabbath school level question. Like this was like a Sunday school, Sabbath school, early, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old question, right? Like they all answer instinctively, reflexively, automatically. Oh, come on. Really? That's the question you're asking us? Here we are, you know, students of the law, lifelong rabbis, some of us, and you're going to ask us that question? And so they all answer in unison. Everybody knew the answer. Um, he's the son of David. He's the son of David. Incidentally, Ellen White in this last, what is it? One, two, the last two paragraphs here, she just goes the son of David over and over again, right? Here it is. Son of David. Son of David, son of David, and then all over here. Son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David. Son of David, just over and over again. So when he says, hey, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They all said he's the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. We've actually heard that a few times in the Gospels before. Blind Bartimaeus, for example, when he cries out, says, son of David, have mercy on me. When the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and said her daughter was grievously ill and, and vexed, uh, she referred to him as the son of David. And so when Jesus asks this easy question, this elementary, this pedestrian question, what about Messiah? Whose son is he? They're all like, hello, the son of David. So then what Jesus does is remarkable. Verse 43, he then said to them, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And then he quotes from Psalm 110, quoting Yahweh, I'm just going to purposely say Yahweh here because it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He then asks the question, the punchline. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You get the question? It's absolutely incredible because David has referred to the Messiah as Lord, but you've just said that 
the Messiah is the son of David. So if Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. How can Messiah be both the son of David and the Lord of David? I'll, I'll wait here while you answer. Just, just take your time, take your time. The reason they can't answer the question is they don't understand the nature of Messiah. See, friends, the only way to answer this question is to understand that Messiah is God in the flesh. That's the only way to answer the question. Because how can someone be David's Lord, right? Preeminent, before him, authoritative, and be his son? Messiah is none other than God in human form, God incarnate, God in flesh. And this was not widely believed. It was believed that Messiah would be a military figure, a political figure. He would be a lot of very important things to the nation of Israel, but it was not understood or comprehended that Messiah would be God himself, Yahweh in the flesh, which is why again and again, especially in the gospel of John, the religious leaders are absolutely scandalized when Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am. John chapter eight, verse 58. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my father are one. And they're just like, we're gonna stone you. And he's like, why are you gonna stone me? For what good work are you going to stone me? Well, because you, being a man, make yourself equal with God. Now, we've noted several times in our study of Desire of Ages, Philippians chapter two, who, Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, the actual Greek in that section there of Philippians two is a little convoluted and a little complicated. So, so this is, and its translations are kind of all over the map on that verse, who, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This is basically what the text is saying. Jesus didn't have to steal divinity. He didn't have to, he didn't have to capture as a thief captures divinity because he already had it. He was God. Messiah was God in the flesh. And so when Jesus says to them, whose son is Messiah? They're like the son of David. He's gonna be in the lineage of David. He's gonna be like David. He's gonna be a warrior like David. He's gonna be a boss like David was a boss. He's gonna be a king. He's gonna reestablish Israel. So Jesus says, okay, good answer. So here's my question. Psalm 110 says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David said this, how can, how can Messiah be both the Lord of David and the son of David? And notice what it says. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Because they didn't understand the nature of Messiah, that he was Yahweh incarnate. And he knew that they didn't understand it. And so this chapter, or this section of this chapter, most of Matthew chapter 22, is so good because you have these boom, 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 three rapid fire questions all designed to pin Jesus to the wall, and he deftly answers every single one of them. And again, I wanna say it. First question is what? Nature of our relationship to the state. Second question is our relationship or our understanding of the dead and the resurrection. Third question is, what about the law? So the state, the dead, the law. Those are the very same three major issues that will confront God's people at the end of time. And we need to be able to give answers as quickly, as easily, as deftly, and as wisely as Jesus did in that situation when people are trying to trick, trying to trap, trying to capture. 
absolutely remarkable. And then Jesus puts them all to an open shame by asking them a question that they cannot answer because they don't understand the nature of Messiah or his mission. And so it says from that time on, they were like, we're going to stop trying to trap this guy because we can't. He outsmarts us at every turn. He knows the scriptures better than we do. And he seems to have a wisdom far in advance of his years. There's the old saying, you can't expect old heads on young shoulders. Well, Jesus was an old head on young shoulders. I mean, 30 years, 30 years old to have the wisdom that he had, the insight that he had, the perspicacity that he had. And he's just absolutely stumping these, you know, well-known rabbis and that are people that are, you know, coming to him with, with questions that have been argued and debated and discussed over and over and over again. And he answers them in like 60 seconds. Again, you can't make this up. You can't make this up. So I absolutely love this chapter. My word, what was your word for this chapter? I want to see what your word was. I went back and forth on several different options and I finally settled on one. It's not the most exciting word, but I think it captures the chapter. Let's see what you did. Very interested to see what what words you guys came up with. I can tell you right now, one of the words that I thought about using was confused. Confused because she uses that word again and again. Okay, there we go. You're in the same vein there. Uh, Astonished, someone says. Love, outwitted, great word. Untrappable, yeah, you're going the same direction I was originally going. Mystery, good, silenced. Ooh, I like that. Oh, too silenced. Ooh, broad. Silence, very good, Hannah. Oh, questions, that's mine. Yeah, mine was questions. Uh, Christian Martin says, principle, love it. Contradicted, I like that, Cassandra. Questions, that was mine as well, Glenn. Um, rebellion, yep, confounded, Pam. Yeah, yeah, confounded is very good. A lot of, I'm seeing a lot of the same here. Confounded, stumped, outwitted, undefeated. Oh, undefeated. Bernice says, lectured, I like it. Misconception. Supriya says, got my good friend uh, from, from Australia, Akil, trying to call me. Um, what did you say, Jennifer? You said incarnation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incarnation is very good because it really captures the essence of that fourth question. Thanks, Jennifer, for tuning in. I love you. Great to see you. Um, silenced. Con- The infinite, illimitable, incarnate God. All right, so let's just quickly do our rubric here. The point, the person, the prayer, and the practice. So what was the point of this chapter? For me, it was to highlight four important questions. Four important questions, three of Jesus and one by Jesus. Okay, so pretty simple, pretty simple. And also, I suppose you could add on that to show the wisdom of Jesus um, triumphing over the supposed wisdom and scriptural awareness of the religious leaders of his day. That's the point of the chapter, right? To show that Jesus can outwit these guys. He knows where they're gonna go before they know where they're gonna go, right? So they spread out the net and then they fall in it themselves. Um, What do we learn about the person of God in this chapter 
I think a lot of you probably had the same kind of thing here because you put outwitted and stumped. And I put um, that, that God is not someone to mess with intellectually and uh, he is not someone to lay a trap for. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> don't try to lay a trap for God because that's not gonna go well for you, right? He's, he's, got the, uh, he, he's not called the Ancient of Days for nothing, right? He's literally called wisdom personified in Proverbs 8. So yeah, bad idea. Don't try to outsmart God. There are people that are doing it today, uh, not in these, you know, um, as confrontational and, and in-person ways. But there's a lot of people that think they've, they've got one over on God. They're smarter than God. You know what they need to do? You know what the people that think they've got one up on God are smarter than God? You know what they need to do? They need to open their mind to scripture. They need to open their mind. And I know that a great many people, especially in the modern world, would think, no, 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 no. To take scripture seriously would be a narrowing of the mind. Oh, no. You need to open your mind to scripture and to the God of Scripture, and to His goodness, and to His power, and to His wisdom. Come on. Um, so for me, yeah, God is not someone to mess with intellectually, and not someone to try and lay a trap, lay a trap for. Thirdly, how do we pray this chapter? You know what I put? And I've had variations of this all the way through the Desire of Ages, but I just put, Father, make me honest. Make me honest. Honest with myself honest with you, and honest with those around me. I want to be an honest person. I really want to be honest in my innermost soul. And the people that questioned Jesus, at least the first two, there was an, a dishonesty there. Disingenuous, inauthentic, just trying to trap Jesus so that they can continue to live their selfish lives. And when Jesus exposes their selfishness, that's an opportunity for them to repent rather than to double down and try to come up with another way to trap him. And I feel like we do this. We do this. We try to um, wiggle our way out of God's invitation to us to repent, to repent, to turn to him, to recognize that God is God, we are not, and to just be honest, be honest with ourselves. We're sinful, we're fallen. I listened to um, an interview with Jordan Peterson I'm, maybe some of you out there are, are big Jordan Peterson fans. I wouldn't call myself a big fan of Jordan Peterson, but I have listened to several interviews with him. I haven't read any of his books yet, um, but I, I've listened to some interviews with him. And, and he said something very interesting in the interview that I listened to with, it was yesterday, I think. He said this, he said, if in your world, in your thinking about the world, if the evil person is someone other than you, you're on shaky ground. And I thought, man, that is so true. If evil is always over there, if the bad people are always over there, if the people to be nervous about are always over there, then we're on shaky ground because we're gonna find ourselves just like the Pharisees, uh, the, the, the parable that Jesus told, the Pharisee that said, I'm glad I'm not like these people. Friends, the, the, the evil that we need to be most concerned about is not the evil that's external to us. It's the evil inside of our own heart. It's the deceitfulness inside of our own heart. It's the dishonesty inside of our own heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So I really appreciated it when he said that. He said, if in your view of the world, the evil person is always that person over there, you're on shaky ground. We need to look ourselves in the mirror and say, I need help. I need salvation. I need Jesus. It's me. 
It's like the old spiritual. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Doesn't it go, not my mother, not my brother, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my sister, not my whatever, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of, it's me, it's me, it's me. And so my, practi- my practical application here is, Lord, help me to be an honest person. Help me to be an honest person, honest with myself, honest with you, and honest with those around me. And then finally here, practice. How do we practice this? I said, Lord, broaden my mind by prioritizing and believing in Scripture and in the power of God, the God who's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. That's what I want. I want a broad mind. I want a mind so broad that I'm learning not just from the great men of the earth, Right, the Jordan Petersons and the academics and the theologians. Fine, we have things we can learn from these men and women. I got no problem with that. But but all of them need to be subordinate to this. Right, render to the world what is the world's, and render to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. You want an open mind. You want a you want a, a towering intellect. You want a capacity to understand the world around you in a way that people just don't. You go to scripture. You go to him who is the creator. Okay, and I know, as you do as well, that scripture has fallen out of favor in this day and age. Okay, so what? Who cares? Who cares if scripture is no longer popular? Who ca- I, I'm that, I am not the least bit worried about that. Friends, the truth of the matter is, is that a little bit of persecution, a little bit of adversity, a little bit of trial would be probably the very best thing for the Christian church. Because if you're at all familiar with church history, the church has not historically done very well when it was popular and in power. When it's alienated and ostracized and kicked out and punished, it's not happy to say it. It's not like I'm craving persecution. I can only say that a little bit of adversity would do the Christian church well. By the Christian church, I mean the Christian church in first world countries. Because a lot of Christians in other areas of the world are already under significant adversity and persecution. So I am not the least bit worried about God's ability to sustain his people in a time of coming difficulty and adversity. And you shouldn't be either. This is not the time to be departing from scripture or questioning scripture or this is the time to be filling your mind like we're doing in the DA with DA challenge with scripture. This is that time. Okay, and I'm not saying that you can't watch your news outlets and watch Netflix and pay attention to YouTube. Fine, fine. You want to do that? That's up to you. That's how you want to spend your time. You knock yourself out. But be sure that you are spending significant quality time in the text of Scripture. Right? Just just be disciplined. Get an accountability partner, whether it's your spouse or a friend or somebody, to hold you to account and say, are you spending at least as much time in the text, good, sincere time of meditation and reflection and, and prayer uh, as you are in all of these worldly things that are gonna pass away. They're like dust in the wind. They're like in Isaiah 40. They're, they're all flowers. They're all grass of the field. They're gonna vaporize before the thing that matters most, which is the return of Jesus. So I'm not saying you shouldn't be aware of those things or initiated into the wider world in which we live to have a level of cultural conversancy. Fine, fine. That's great. I think it's wonderful. I strive to do that myself, but I want to make all of that subordinate to the text of Scripture and to Jesus. And so hopefully this has been a blessing to you. It's great to be back in the saddle with DA with DA. 
Tomorrow we'll be in chapter 67. I didn't even look at chapter 67. It is, I think, the woes on the, woes on the Pharisees. So tomorrow we'll be in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus issues, what is it, seven or eight woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. We'll compare that very likely to Isaiah 6, Isaiah 5 and 6, which has its own series of woes. And um, yeah, let's close with prayer. It's been great to be back. Father in heaven, help us to trust in you as the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, forgive us where we have not prioritized you and your word and your goodness as we could and should. And Father, teach us how to broaden our minds to the things that matter most. Father, not to be totally unaware or disconnected from or isolated from the world around us, but Father, to prioritize things, just like Jesus did in that first question there. Sure, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but don't forget to render to God the things that are God's. Father, teach us how to give you our time, our talents, our energy, our finances, our resources, our family, everything. Father, to give it to you, and we then know you'll give it back to us free, and and you will empower us to use those things to do something of eternal significance, not just passing in temporal significance. And so, Father, Transform us from the inside out and make us the kinds of people that can make a difference. Oh, I really like that. Father, make us the kinds of people that can make a difference in the world, whether on a grand scale or a moderate scale or even a small scale. Father, make us those people is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.